0: Welcome to The Third Rail Entrepreneur, a podcast about enrichment. Enrichment of your mind, your relationships, your body, and ultimately, your business via the entrepreneurial path. My name is Alistair MacDonald. Let's get started. What you're about to hear is a two-part episode of The Third Rail Entrepreneur. We are speaking about something that is so common and so commonly done poorly, partnerships. As I say, it's a two-part episode with myself and my dear mate, Dr. Mark Costas. We cover just some of the pitfalls and profitability and things to consider inside of your partnerships, whether current or future. We'll take a break halfway through and jump to a second episode just because this is a long one. It's a meaty one and I hope that you find some value.
1: Friends, welcome back to another episode of the Third Rail Entrepreneur. I have your co-host, Alistair MacDonald. With me today is my dear mate, Dr. Mark Costas. Mark, I know we've got some cool stuff to talk about today, mate.
2: Hello, my friend. Thank you so much for having me back. This is awesome. It's been too long. There's been a lot going on with you and, uh, I'll say Texas freezing over instead of hell freezing over, which actually strangely affected a lot of people in the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, strange relay towers freezing for cell phones and so forth. The interconnectedness of the world is normally awkwardly revealed to us at times like that.
2: Yeah, so interesting. So interesting. But uh, yes, I'm, I'm very, very excited to dig back in to the Third Rail Entrepreneur and talk about partnerships, I think.
0: Partnerships are something that you and I see
1: so much of. In different industries, uh, partnerships that are thriving, and unfortunately, too often partnerships that are at some level either grating on the parties themselves or in an outright spiral toward the inevitable collapse. They're as widely done as they are widely done badly, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Of course, the amount of time and energy that has gone into our own partnerships over the years and those that we are fortunate to work with. We have not just the blessings of our own bruisings and partnership areas that we've had front row seats to those of gosh, I don't even know how many others.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting too, because human nature pulls us towards other people, especially when we're feeling insecure for any particular reason. I'll tell you that for sure, I've gotten involved with many partnerships because I felt insecure and didn't want to do something by myself, even if a potential partner didn't have any skill set or knowledge that I didn't possess. I just wanted somebody else to charge into battle with, which isn't always a bad thing, but it can be an ill-conceived motivation for getting involved with somebody in what in essence is a marriage, a business
1: marriage. It really is. And what I think, and I, I really appreciate that because there is so much truth what you shared. And I think to some degree or another, it's at the core of this instinct to partner in just about anybody that's better partnered in a business, that sense of who's going to have my back. Mm -hmm. And so to me, what emerges immediately is a beautiful question that anyone out there that is in a partnership or is considering one, the beautiful question emerges immediately, which is, there is clearly a need. So in this case, you described the need to not feel like you have to go it alone, to have someone who has your back, uh, etc. And I think that out of the gate, we're in trouble. The question is, what need does this satisfy? And in my experience with partnerships, the worst version is what the partner needs. That's a mistake. I believe that the question should be, what need does the consumer, patient, customer have that this person can solve or satisfy, because when we show up with needs, immediately there is the potential for an imbalance of power, imbalance of contribution, and inevitably an imbalance of reward from that partnership, especially when things get very ethereal like that. How do I measure? What are the KPIs for confidence? So when I choose to partner with you, it's because I'm not really confident in this example that I can do it alone. How will I know that I've hit that API? How do I measure that I've got what I needed? It's too ethereal. I won't know whether or not it's there. And so instead, I would make the case that if somebody is considering this, ask yourself, is it me that needs this? Or is it the business that needs this? And the very next question that I know our friends out there will already jump to is, if it is a need that I have, Or regardless of what the answer is, is the need, is the business need or I have, does it have to be bought or can it be hired? (laughs) Yes. I am going to open a podiatry business, let's say, and I am myself a practitioner. The idea that, okay, look, what what I need to feel confident is a partner. What is that partner exactly? What are they going to do for me exactly? that will give me that need, that satisfy that need of confidence. You're probably going to find, as we always discover, confidence is an endogenous feeling. There is very little in the outside world that is going to give you what is actually a feeling. We have to create it ourselves. So the next question becomes, okay, so the business needs another podiatrist in my fictitious practice here. The practice needs it. Makes perfect sense. Do I need to buy that person or can I rent them? Meaning, do they truly need to be an owner of a business to satisfy the patient's need? Well, obviously not. I imagine the vast bulk of them are employees of businesses. And out of the gates, we find ourselves moving into a problem because of a faulty premise.
2: I totally, totally agree. It's funny because we see this actually happen a lot. And I've seen certain people get involved with people that are particularly strong in an area where they aren't. For instance, when I hired my first personal assistant, Ashley, she was really good at organization. She was very technically gifted. She was great with Excel spreadsheets. I can barely attach something to an email and send it. And she just excelled in that area. Now, if I looked at Ashley and said, you are doing the vast majority of the administrative work. And I said, hey, Ashley, you're a huge part of this organization even though this business is just starting and we don't have any revenues yet, I'd like to bring you on as a 50-50 partner. It seems logical because I come up with the content. I come up with the intellectual property. I have the street cred to sell said intellectual property. And she's doing all the background stuff. 50-50 partnership sounds logical. And a lot of people maybe are saying, yeah, that sounds like a good partnership potential. But actually, she wasn't interested In being a partner. And I frankly didn't offer it to her because I knew that as the company grew, she would be a perfect person to grow with the company, eventually, maybe rise up to the level of COO, which she now holds the title of COO. She never had any interest in being a partner in the company. She's not of the entrepreneurial ilk, and that's just not interesting to her. But to be an executive and to run, A large team is something that she's really, really interested in. A lot of times we impart our entrepreneurial desire onto other people that don't even want it. That's one thing.
1: It's huge.
2: Yeah, right? Another thing is what I've noticed, and and you and I have co-coached certain clients, Alistair, where they know that somebody brings a certain skill to the table. But they haven't taken the time to clearly define what their expectations are for a partner. So, don't you think it's important to sit down and say, here are the needs of the business? Yes. Take a lot of time to write down and try to forecast forward and say, right now, here are the needs of the business. Here will be the needs of the business in one, three, five years. How are we going to fulfill these needs of the business? And is there a way that we can make those needs divvied up according to our strengths? in a manner that all of the needs of the business are going to be served by the partners. If you can't do that and you can't have some sort of a clear definition of who's going to do what and what each person's expectation is of the other, we've seen most people don't ever do this exercise. And if you don't do this exercise, these partnerships are destined to have tension and unfortunately, eventually fail.
1: Yes, because it's rooted in dishonesty. And nobody wants to hear that. But it's simply that it's dishonesty by omission. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily commission. Nobody is actively trying to lie to each other. The problem is we lie to ourselves about our own motivation. In your beautiful example, I just don't feel courageous enough to do it myself. Beautiful. That happens fascinatingly enough, as much at the beginning of our career as it does at the end. You and I know many people in an industry that are worried about the exit from the industry. It's the same thing on the bell curve. They were afraid of coming in in case they didn't stick the landing. And they're afraid on the way out in case they don't stick the landing. They don't get to recoup the value of their asset as it currently is. And so we see some egregious partnership practices that are desperately people just clutching at the hope that by giving someone some piece of ownership, they will magically develop not just the skills but as you said so perfectly, the appetite for it. This is an absolute projection. And we've all done it. Hey, I love this. You're going to love it too. And <laughs> It's like, no, I've." You know, <laughs> we see this a lot with our friends and clients where they would speak of their employees and say, oh, you know, why don't they just? And it surprises me that they're not thinking about X. Surely by now they should. Well, no, because if they did think the way you did, they would have started their own business. Yes. It's a really strange thing. We just have different appetites. No one's wrong or bad. Just different instincts and different versions of what a successful working life looks like. So this honesty and dishonesty is
2: crucial. You mentioned it briefly, but one of your more popular addresses <laughs> from stage and in video that uh, different trainings that you've done is this: the difference between the errors in omission versus commission. Can you just go just a little bit deeper? Commission is what. Omission is what. And the difference between the two.
1: All mistakes, all problems in our business, all errors that employees make, that we make, can be divided beautifully by this simple litmus test or this binary outcome of errors of omission and errors of commission. And there's a lot more to it than that. But summarily speaking, omission suggests, as the name says, something is missing, either an understanding, tools, equipment, time, training, support priorities, resources of some kind. If any of these things are missing, errors are inevitable. They're inevitable. The mistake that business owners and partners make is the assumption that these errors of omission are something someone's doing deliberately to me. They just don't care. They aren't trying. We've spoken about it. There is not, for example, in the, on the, the era of omission of understanding, mm-hmm. it is not up to the teacher to decide whether the student understands. It is the student that reflects by the results they create, whether or not they understand the lesson, the protocol, the process, the concept, what have you. Mm-hmm. Errors of omission, owners should grab with both hands because the moment you do and you solve them, You instantly upgrade not just the results of this particular partner or employee, but your entire business itself gets improved immediately. We make those mistakes and we say, great, I won't make that mistake again. These are really important and super easy to solve. Mm -hmm. Assuming we can get over our own needs to be right. We want employees to be wrong, our partners to be wrong, and we're not focused on being effective. The other side are errors of commission. And this is where something is deliberately chosen, where somebody has withheld information. They've chosen to come in late. They've chosen to be obnoxious in the office with their coworkers. They've chosen to be dishonest. They have chosen to gossip, et cetera, et cetera. Errors of commission need to be treated very seriously. It is the errors of commission that destroy partnerships. And are like a cancer inside your organization. These need to be taken care of aggressively and quickly, because this is something that you simultaneously cannot control, but you pay a complete price for. The errors of omission, everybody pays a price, but you can solve it. Errors of commission, everybody pays a price, but only the perpetrator can stop it. And that's where it's up to us to step in and say this agreement, which we now think of as operating agreements or Employment agreements need to be fleshed out according to what those areas of commission are, in my opinion. There's a lot more we could talk about these, but this has been the most high-impact way to get in front of mistakes, stop them from happening, and most beautifully, give employees an opportunity to win. When we walk employees through this, they get an opportunity to win. They can see what success looks like. Instead of the only time they ever see is when you show up to tell them what a crappy job they've done. I think there's a
2: lot to be said about errors of omission versus commission in partnerships. And we've seen it. We see it happen a lot. You know, this particular person doesn't have the skill set. We identify that. They go out. They get advanced training. They attend an event that allows them to understand the business cycle a little bit better. They have more engagement and interaction with the CPA or bookkeeper. Or sit in while you are doing something that you understand, but they don't. So those are the errors of omission where you can kind of beef up a relationship and a partnership to make it work well. A partnership that suffers from errors of commission or a partner that misbehaves and is dishonest and is undermining the actual partnership, those are areas that we see often as well. And those are the ones that are much more difficult to rectify. It's just like dating. It's just like marriage. It's just like a courtship. Everybody is on their best behavior in the beginning. Oftentimes, people's true colors reveal themselves after the partnership is well underway and it's far too late to get out of it
1: easily. Yeah. What happens in my experience is that we tolerate these things, we tolerate small insults, essentially, to the kind of immune system of the business over and over. And meanwhile, every one of them, we say, we just let it go, just let it go. But what we're letting go are the seeds of resentment are being sown one day at a time. And then eventually it blows up and we say, you've been doing this for three years or you've never done this. And then immediately I'm having to show up and have no idea that there was a p and being run backstage about my performance that you were never honest about and I never had an opportunity to fix because I wasn't aware of it. Mm -hmm. This is a trap. We do this in marriages. We do it with our children. We do it with our employees and, of course, with our partners as well. So what this tugs at is, I think, the most crucial piece of any sort of disequilibria that emerges from partnerships, which is the difference between contribution and reward and the difference between ownership and voting rights. This is super important. And I know you and I have entire trainings about this, so we can't necessarily cover it all here. But let's just go with the first, contribution and reward. When you and I partner, let's say somebody has a skill set I don't have as a dentist. We both show up in a dental practice. We partner in this practice. Your contribution is clearly defined and revenue generating. Mine is clearly defined, but maybe revenue enhancing or revenue protective. Let's say that I have a skill set for overhead management or culture and personnel or what have you. I am not generative, but I am supportive of it. Yes. It's very easy for us to assess and put a number and a compensation package around your contribution, but mine is a little more nebulous. So, what do we do there? We know the value of your contribution when you provide it, we know the value of my contribution when it's removed. This is a very interesting thing. Only when nobody's paying attention to the culture or the overhead, or inventory, ordering, or what have you, do we suddenly realize, oh, crap, the wheels are coming off. So one we know by contribution, one we know by essentially omission, or it being removed. How do we assign the value to these things? We need to really have an honest conversation about them. But normally, because we partner with friends, we don't want to talk about the truth. You are really great at this. I am really bad at that. This is worth X. This is worth Y. We don't do these things, and we avoid this hard work thinking that our friendship and our affinity for each other will get us through it, and this is a mistake as well, the difference between skills and qualities. We should partner for skills, but normally we partner for quality. I know you. I trust you. We're friends. We've known each other for years. That's great. How, does, how do we write an invoice for that? We don't. So we must partner the weight of the scales on skills, and we're taking into account uh, contribution of the qualities of the individual characters. So in this contribution and reward situation, uh, we have to make sure, but it's hard in this scenario I've described. We know your contribution, so we just say, hey, let's split it. We do 50-50 and we run the business together. Super simple. Everybody defaults to it, but is it actually true? Is it true? Because if it's not, if the contribution is even 51-49, over time, that's going to become the stone in this example in your shoe that you're going to feel turn into a boulder over this 20-mile hike that we're on in the journey of business ownership. Starts out as just a small pebble. By the time we arrive, we are drive, we've driven ourselves crazy, which was in happens all the time.
2: I love this conversation. This is exactly what I see happening so often. If we're talking about management slash admin slash COO, operations, right? So you have somebody that's a partner that is in charge of operations, management, administration. And then you have a skilled technician producer that actually produce the service, actually create the widget. It's much more easy to place a value on what they're doing. Exactly. Oftentimes, the skilled technician slash producer doesn't necessarily value what's happening on the other side because they don't understand it.
1: So, so true.
2: Right? So they don't understand that the manager, administrator, operations guy has a whole host of things that he has to deal or she has to deal with on a daily basis. And there is inherent value to that. If that is never explained to the skilled technician or the producer, That person will go on thinking that they are the most important person in the organization. And no matter how hard the operations person is working, even if they are working above and beyond what was agreed to, the skilled producer will never respect what they bring to the table. So it's very, very important that you, if you have a producer, skilled technician, and an operator, that that producer has to at least understand what's happening on the other side, understand it, and perhaps even walk a mile in the operator's shoes to give them an intimate appreciation of what's happening on the other side of the business.
1: This is so powerful and so common that even the icons of business cannot help this bias, this bias of of assigning greater value It's the Dunning Kruger effect to a certain Mm -hmm. extent—the sense that my contribution is beyond average, is above average, that I am ex, my stuff is valuable, yours not so much. This is so prevalent that even Peter Thiel of Thiel Capital, of PayPal fame, of Palantir shows this beautifully in the space that gets the least respect in the in every industry, sales. Mm -hmm. Sales is the most disrespected part of business, in my experience, in all industries. We have no idea those salespeople, are. Oh, they just, those men and women just go to conferences and party. They just take people out to play golf, whatever it is. This is so prevalent, as I say, that inside Palantir, which is one of Teal's companies that recently went public, it's a giant data mining company. If you don't know it, uh, be afraid. Palantir knows more about you than you do it. Peter Thiel swore that Palantir would never have a sales force. And he writes about it at length in his book, Zero to One. That seemed to work really well until the company tried to go public. And his CEO, who was doing somewhere in the order of 200,000 miles of travel a year, trying to service all of the relationships, almost imploded. And so now, what does Palantir do? Well, oddly enough, they finally learned the value of a sales team. This happens all the time. Our Mm -hmm. contribution is skewed. Oh, it's really huge. Yours is, is modest. So we have to be clear about the contribution and reward. You and I might be equal partners, but it's entirely possible that our reward is not 50-50. Mm-hmm. And we have to be honest about this. And so we've are going got some thoughts to share about how we might do that. But this brings me to the second version of this same contribution reward thing, which is the difference between ownership, so the percentage of ownership, and voting rights. This is crucial. Let's imagine that two equally professionally qualified people get together. They're both CPAs. And they say, we're going to partner. Or let's say one has been in business for 10 years and the other is joining them in that business. Mm -hmm. The foolish assumption is that because they both have the accreditation of CPAs, that therefore their voting rights should also be 50-50. Well, is that true? Is this business functional, profitable, attractive simply because we have CPA after our name, or is it functional, valuable, and practical because it has relied on my experience? I've been in business for 10 years. You've just joined me as a CPA graduate. Is it true that you should have the same voting rights as me? Absolutely not. You are not as qualified in the domain of business ownership and management and leadership as I am. And my value will be discounted if I pretended that simply because of your accreditation that you were qualified in this other ethereal domain that we don't have a way of capturing. MBAs don't do it. Nothing really captures the experience and wisdom, lessons learned inside the trenches of business ownership. And the mistake that we see all the time somebody buys into a business 25%, 50%, and they think that they're qualified to weigh in on benefits packages, employee reprimands, culture. They're not. They're just not. And getting to this point of omission, these are the hard conversations that we avoid because we think by squinting our eyes and ignoring it, it'll just magically resolve itself. It doesn't.
2: That brings up a great point, too uh, this omission and this lack of willingness to have this uncomfortable conversation in the beginning of a partnership is the beginning of the end. That is building a skyscraper on sand. Yes. Because if we're unwilling to have the conversation now and hoping that at some point it will resolve itself, it never will resolve itself. In fact, that conversation is going to get much more difficult.
1: As the stakes get higher.
2: As the stakes get higher, exactly. And yeah. exactly what was bothering you in the beginning or what you were unwilling to address in the beginning is precisely what's going to take the organization down and what's going to end up leading to the
1: split in the partnership. So much of this is because we're not honest about something that they will never tell you to do in the business books. It's never going to show up as a module in an MBA or anything else, which is how it feels. The fact is, You and I will cruise along. We're both contributing to this fictitious business. But something is bothering me. It's chafing me. The disparity of contribution and reward or the fact that I'm handling the after-hours facility issues when you're not, this creates feelings, feelings of resentment. And the foolish thinking is that we can put metrics around these issues and just solve it with a KPI, solve it with a quarterly performance target. The truth is, some stuff just feels crappy. And the best way to solve it is to go to your partner and say, help me feel better about this. This is coming up for me. I need to feel better about this. What a genuine and kind and authentic thing that is. And if the person that you're in business with is the person you think they are, it is irrefutable that you feel that way. And they cannot take it away from you. They can't say, no, you love it. it feels great for you. They could say that with your KPI. Well, well that's being discounted over here. They can't take your feelings away from you. Equally, if they are the person you want them to be, the person you think they are, then they will reveal themselves in this conversation. If I'm asking for your help, feeling better about some aspect of our working together, you will reveal yourself by the way you come back to help me solve this problem that I'm experiencing. But we don't do it. We pretend that we can just tough it out and, you know, just suck it up and press on. And then we go home and dump this toxic poison all
0: over our family. Tragedy. It's completely unnecessary. That's it for this episode. Thanks for being here. Hey, there's only two things that you have in your life, your time and your attention that you've given both to me for these few minutes of today means everything. Cheers.